I don't know if you've noticed or heard, but ours is a divided world. Um, While I was recovering from COVID, I spent a lot of time reading and watching the news, and it just occurred to me how much the enemy is at work and how clearly it's evident. I don't know if you saw the story of uh, there was basically a brawl that broke out at, at uh, Bath and Body, of all places. Yeah. Did you see that, Jen? Yeah. Uh, it, it, I mean, I realized the sales are good. <laughs> but no, this, this, this started because of, I think somebody didn't have their mask on, or they weren't you know, exactly six feet apart, or whatever, and just... Everything came unglued right at that moment. And here the, these are, and I'll use the term loosely, adults wrestling on the ground like children. And it occurred to me, my goodness, what, what is going on in our world? The, the world, to some degree or another, has always been like that. That's how the enemy works. Whenever you see division, whenever you see uh, a tearing, whenever you see uh, two individuals or two groups kind of parting ways, that is always the work of the enemy. And we can't do much about that. That is the way that the world is. That's the way the world has always been. And in my estimation, that's the way the world will always be. My job is to, to speak to you as the church, as the body. And so, uh, for the next few weeks, we're going to be talking in this series about unity. And our calling from Christ himself to be one. Jesus understood how important this was uh, to the kingdom. And so, we're going to look at, we're going to be not involved in a lot of scriptures, we're going to involve a few scriptures deeply this morning. And so whether you're watching online at home or whether you are here in person, I would encourage you to open Bible, be it paper paper or digital, um, because we're going to look at these scriptures. The first place I would like you to turn is to John chapter 17. While you're turning there, I'll give you a little bit of context. This is at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. He has gathered together... Uh, the twelve who have followed him, and he has some final instructions for them. Now, can you imagine, if you will, if you, if you knew when your last day on earth would be, how you might treat that last day? Well, probably in much the same way that Jesus did. You would gather those closest to you. Uh, you would share with them everything you wanted them to know. And very likely prayers would be shared as people of faith. Well, we're, we're not told exactly, we don't know the day appointed to us. But as we, as we look at Jesus' story, we look in the way which he did that. And, and John chapter 14, I'm giving you context here, we're going to end in John 17, so you don't have to turn there, but he says, let not your hearts be troubled. He addresses the fear uh, that they would face when he left them. He promises that he's going to send someone else, a helper, 
the promised Holy Spirit to be with them. He, he reminds them that he is the vine, uh, that they must abide in him if they're going to bear any fruit, uh, that only in him will they be able to accomplish the work that he has set out for them. He says, the world is going to hate you. Your job as a, as a Christian is not to make the world like you. Uh, in fact, probably Christians who try to do that uh, will water down their Christianity. He says, the world's hated me. And if you're following me, they're going to hate you as well. You can't do anything about that. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And then in chapter 17, he, instead of looking around, he looks up. Verse 1 says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes and said. And, and here, from this point forward, we have the recording of the prayer between Jesus the Son and God the Father. We acknowledge them as separate, but Jesus says many times that they are one, that they are uh, united, and he will talk about that, why that's so important. We could go through the chapter, but that would be a very long sermon, so I want to jump in about in verse 11 in the sort of about a third of the way through this prayer. He says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled, referring here to Judas. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because, because, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. Make them holy. Draw them out. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in the truth. Now, we get here so much depth from Jesus, just learning from his prayer. At first, that we are to be called away from the world. We're in the world, but not of the world. You've probably heard that saying. We have to raise families in the world. We have to work in the world. We, to some degree or another, we're in the world. But what Jesus is saying to be not of the world, he's saying not to be a part of the world's system of values. Not to get caught up in, in what the world gets caught up in. Not to be drawn away by the distractions thrown in front of us right and left. We're in the world but not of it. 
we are sojourners. I talked, I was here Wednesday night, and I was speaking with the so, one of the sojourners who had been at Carpenter Place. That's what sojourners do. Their, their home is not here in Wichita, but once a year they sojourn, they, they travel to a place that's not their own. They are guests. And they don't get caught up in the politics of Wichita and the happenings going on here because they know that they are not destined to remain here. It's the same with you and I. And it's tempting. It's very tempting to get caught in the things of the world. Jesus says, I've called them out. And he's speaking, of course, in that scenario of the disciples immediate to him. But then he broadens it. And this is what I want to focus on. We're now looking at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. You and I are here, together here today, because 2,000 years ago, these disciples abided in Christ and resolved not to be a part of the world any longer. Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I want you to think, I mean, I know he's talked to the disciples, he's given them some instructions, he has, you know, given them the, the, the wisdom that he would want them to know. And, and if, in fact, in, I think it's verse 16, he, he finally come to the realization of G, what Jesus had been saying all along, that he and the Father were one, that when, when they saw Jesus, they saw the Father. And they finally come to this realization. And, and can you imagine, as Jesus gives them the men he was closest to in this world, his closest friends, arguably, what he might have prayed for, what he could have prayed for, Imagine the loneliness that Jesus felt. Scriptures tell us that as he prayed, the disciples fought to stay awake. Imagine the loneliness that he must have felt. Knowing that even those closest to him would be scattered. Um... Chapter 16, Jesus answered them. This is verse 31, chapter 16, verse 31. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered. Each to his own home. And will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Back this scenario, I ask you to imagine. Imagine your last day. Imagine those you love dearest and best in the world. 
and you've gathered them around, but, but then as the night tarries on, they leave you until finally it's just you. What would that feel like? Can you imagine the great pressure that Jesus was under? Luke chapter 22 tells us that Jesus prayed that if it was possible to let this cup, the cup signifying the judgment and the wrath of God, let this cup pass from me. Some people talk about the cross and they they talk about the physical agony. The flogging and the scourging and and how he died and where the nails were and the pain and, and how he suffocated while he died. But... But many people had been crucified. Many people had suffered in that way. I, I don't think the physical suffering, bad as it was, was what Jesus felt. The pressure that he knew would come. The, the pressure that he knew was, was that as the, that cup was poured out, that the Father would turn from the Son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus knew that he and the Father were always one, but he knew that moment was coming. The, the, the only way was that he could take the wrath, do us, do all sinners, and have it poured out to him. What great pressure Jesus must have been under. And despite the loneliness and the, the pressure and thinking about, I mean, Jesus, or uh, Luke tells us that as he prayed, he prayed and sweat drops of blood dripped down, which was a, a medical condition indicating a great, severe amount of stress. And as Jesus prays this prayer, despite all of this, His prayer for them and for us is that we might be one. That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe. You see, if you break it down and you really begin to understand why Jesus would, in a, in a, a period of, of absolute low, I mean, I mean, just spiritually had to be one of the lower points of his earthly life. He was lonely. He, he knew they would, he would be abandoned. He knew the Father would turn away. He knew the pressure. And in that moment, he's not thinking of himself. He's thinking of us. And he's not thinking selfishly of you. He's not thinking that you'll get the raise of the promotion. He's not, he's not thinking that you might have build bigger barns. He, he's not thinking of any of that. He's praying that, that we might all be one. Why? So that the world may believe. Jesus prayed that we might be one. So that the world might be one. 
That's why unity matters. Jesus Jesus prayed for unity not just to feel good, not just to make you and I feel good, because honestly, unity is hard. There's a reason that he prayed for it. And the reason is just as true today as it was 2,000 years ago. And that is this. Our world has always been divided. It was the tax collectors and the zealots. It was the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There were always camps and divisions. And he knew that if we all could remain one in Him, just as He was in the Father, that that would make the world pay attention. That, in a, in a world where our attention is so divided, that would speak. And so it is with us. We have to listen and take seriously the prayer request of Jesus. I don't know if you've ever had someone ask you to pray for them or they're going through a hard situation. Maybe you've offered to pray for them. My hope is that as a Christian you do that and engage in that. It's one of the many wonderful tools that we have in our spiritual battle and our earthly sojourn. But can you imagine for a second someone saying to you, coming up and saying, you know, I'm really going through a tough time, and I uh, really need you to pray for me. And you responding, you know, I, I'd like to, but I really, I just can't. I mean, can you imagine the goal? Can you imagine, what? Why won't you, why won't you pray for me? Now, now imagine for a second that Jesus has a prayer request for you and I. And it's this. That we might be one. Jesus, that's going to be hard. Yeah. Yes, it will. You understand we don't all agree about these things? Yes, I know. Why? that the world may believe. Because if they can see unity amongst yourselves, they, they know that there, there must be something out of this world about the one who's called you. Unity is a powerful testimony to a divided world. And so may we weep Anytime and anywhere we see a divided church. Because that's, that's not living up to our calling, you see. That's not what Jesus called us to. It's not what Jesus prayed for. But unity is hard. I can tell you that unity is hard, but maybe it's better to explain how unity is hard. How many of you here are married? You know that unity is hard, don't you? Now listen, I have no idea if you're smiling, frowning, or whatever, because this whole bit. So if you're agreeing with me, I need one of these. You know, 
you disagree, I need one of these. You know, if you're tired of the sermon, I need one of these. Although that won't make much difference, and you know that. Turn now to Ephesians chapter 5. Now, this, this is not a classic unity scripture, but it's illustrative. And we're going to use the scripture to illustrate and talk about the difficulty of unity. And the, the, the way that I could think, what is the way in which most people can relate to the challenges of unity? It's in marriage. Now, I realize not everyone is married. There are some widowed, and, and there are some that are single, and this is not to, to leave you out. I just, this is the broadest illustration I could think of that most will understand. Ephesians chapter 5. Now, Ephesians chapter 5 is talking about, again, the practical, she's been talking about this with Romans, Ephesians chapter 5 is talking about the practical way of living out our theology. In Ephesians chapter 5, there's a section in there, he talks about what seems to be the relationship between husbands and wives. But if you pay close attention to the scripture, he's really speaking to something deeper. And and usually we miss that. Now, unfortunately, most Bibles, it starts in verse 22. It says, mine says, wives and husbands. That heading is on the wrong place. It should be in verse 21. It says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to, lowering myself to one another out of reverence for Christ. Then in verse 22 it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And and, and in the Greek it actually just says, Wives, as to the Lord. And it's referring back to verse 21. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything to their husbands. Not a popular scripture. Why? Because one is being called to submit. Why? Verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Verse 25, or verse 26. He gets to, I'm sorry, it is verse 25. He gets to the husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water in the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any other thing, so that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, for he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes, cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Now, again, he's talking about, first, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And he says, now, wives, as to the Lord. Husbands, as to the Lord. Submit yourselves. Love one another. Serve one another. And to husbands, he gets very clear. Your job as the husband, as the spiritual leader, is to lay down yourself And do everything within your power to make your wife holy. To present her, to help her. We tell our children, thinking about their future spouse, marry someone who will help you get to heaven. Nothing else matters. 
And, and Paul says this, the only way that you have such a marriage is when both give, when both submit. Why? Because it's easy? No. Submitting is the hardest thing in the world. Out of reverence to Christ. Out of reverence to Christ, a wife submits herself to her husband. Out of reverence to Christ, a husband lays down his life for his wife to make her holy. And now look at this. Now he, he's, he keeps going here, verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. And we think he's talking about marriage. He's really not. He's pointing to the relationship between us and Christ. This holy marriage, this eternal matrimony, the relationship that we have is oft compared to a marriage. When Jesus returns into the picture of the bride and the bridegroom. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. You see that? Two shall become one. And the only way that happens is if both are willing to submit themselves out of reverence for Christ. Now, follow me if you're still following verse 32. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Paul says, if you want to have a holy marriage, consider the holy union between Christ and the church. How can a holy, deified, glorified son be unified with an unholy, human, degenerate, fleshly, sinful people? They submit to one another out of reverence unto him. And the husband, Christ, lays down his life to make holy the church. Oh, we miss it if we just relegate Ephesians 5 to a, a text on marriage. What's really talking about is how we have holy harmony. Unity is hard. We realize that if we're going to have a unified marriage, if you're going to have a unified business, you're going to have a unified group of any type, including a church, it's going to require submission of one to another. Now, in the church, it's out of reverence for Christ. So the key to marriage, whether we're talking earthly marriage or eternal marriage is learning to give up yourself. I'm in the season of marriages, doing several premarital counseling and going to be ready to do several different ceremonies here. And, and, and that's often what we get to. I've got two people 
who are single, and for, for in most cases, their whole life up to this point, they've been thinking only of themselves. And in, in a few weeks' worth of time, I've got to, to tell them, listen, everything's about to change. If you want marriage to work, you're going to have to learn to lower yourself. You're going to have to learn to lay down yourself. And you're going to be beginning to start giving up yourself for the other. And that sounds good, but that is hard. Marriage would be easy if it didn't involve two people. The other extreme, you know, divorce. Divorce happens because one or both parties have been selfish, thinking only of themselves. And you'll see divorced people going through custody trials and putting their children through hell because they're thinking only of themselves. It's the opposite of what God intended. To have unity, you must... Lower yourself. To make unity work, you have to give up yourself. The calling that Jesus gave to take up your cross and deny yourself daily is what it takes. How many of you are animal lovers in here? You you have a dog or cat or some. Hold those hands up high. I need to see who it is. All right. Good. Um, I have an animal, but I am not an animal lover. I'm not, I mean, my joke is I'm too cold-hearted to have an animal, really. I know the extra work they take. I know the extra responsibility. I just don't have any desire to have a dog or cat. Now, all of you who love your animals, send me your hate mail. (laughs) But I'm just being honest. Now, knowing that I'm not an animal lover, let me introduce you to my dog, Charlie. Do you know why I have a dog, Charlie, even though I just told you truthfully that I do not love animals? The only reason we have Charlie is because of Christy. She loves animals, been raised with animals, said, hey, I think we should have a dog. I think the family should have a dog. It wasn't my will. That was hers. And I tell Charlie all the time, dog, you better hope and pray that nothing ever happens to Christy. Again, send me your hate mail. It's a simple illustration and there, there's much larger ones. But, but marriage only works when you learn to give, when you learn to bend, when you learn to give up yourself because you love the other. And that's true in marriage, and that's true in the church as well. In the same way, we are called to give up all of ourselves in answer to Jesus' prayer that the world that the world may believe. In turbulent times, I'm often reminded of the 
scene from the movie about William Wallace. And they come to this battle scene and 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 they are just fighting against the enemy. And William Wallace keeps yelling, Hold! 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 And I imagine Jesus, when the church faces pandemics, hardship, a world unraveling, Hold! Hold, hold the church. Why? Because there's a world full of people going to hell. And they need the gospel. And the only way they'll be drawn to it is to see Christ and to see the unity of his church. Jesus didn't pray that prayer capriciously. He prayed it intentionally for a purpose and for a reason. And so may we not take lightly the call to be unified, to be one. One more scripture and we'll close. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the Apostle Paul He says, he's talking about his rights as an apostle. It's a lot of, that's a lot of the talk you hear in our world today. These are my rights. Do you know my rights? Paul would say, let me tell you about my rights. I'm an apostle. I can do whatever I want. I have authority. And to the church of Corinth, he says this, though I am free, I belong to no one. That's verse 19. Of 1 Corinthians 9. I have made myself a slave to everyone. Why? To win as many as possible. To the Jew, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, the Gentiles, I became like one as not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law. And so as to win those not having the law. To the Jews, it became like the Jews. To the Gentiles, it became like the Gentiles. To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak, I have become all things, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Paul understood it was not about him. And he was called to lay down himself. And whatever the context might be, and Paul did it in a multitude of ways, but Paul would be the last person to claim his rights. We're going to look at a scripture where he starts out by saying, as a prisoner for the Lord, reminding them he was writing these instructions from prison. Why? For the sake of the gospel. Paul gave all. All of himself to save some. Whatever was necessary for the sake of the gospel. And may you and I follow that example. In turbulent times it's easy to focus on me and on my rights 
and what I want and what's owed me and what I feel like and what my opinion is. And Paul says, if you are focused on that, you don't know what it means to follow the Lord Jesus. You are called to lay down you. As a prisoner for the Lord, Paul would say. I write this to instruct you. Do whatever it takes for the sake of the gospel. Let us not forget Paul's example and Jesus' prayer. That we might be one. So that the world might be one. Jesus laid down his life to save you and I. He laid down his life to save those who have not called upon his name. Those who have not shown faith in him. Those who have not obeyed his commands. It's up to us as a church to remain as one, unified. And yes, that mean, may mean occasionally laying down yourself for the sake of the gospel. And we not forget the higher calling to which we have been called. This morning, I want to call you and ask you, have you obeyed Jesus? No, I didn't ask you if you had invited him into your heart. The scripture doesn't say that. I, have you obeyed Jesus? No, I didn't ask you if you prayed the sinner's prayer. You won't find that in the pages of scripture. Have you obeyed Jesus by doing what he said to do, by believing and being baptized? If you haven't done that this morning, it would be a wonderful opportunity to do that. We have some shepherds who will gather at the back in just a moment as we sing. You can go meet them there. And uh, we'll be glad to help you with that if you have that need this morning. Or if you need them to pray with you. If you've been struggling with the battle of unity. If you've been focused on yourself more than on the Savior. If you haven't been laying down your life as you've been called to do. um, You can pray with our shepherds and they'll be glad to do that and honored to do so. If you have a spiritual need, whatever it might be. I pray that you meet our shepherds at the back now as we stand and sing.